Welcome to the MacArthur Memorial Podcast. Located in Norfolk, Virginia, the MacArthur Memorial is a museum and research center dedicated to the life and legacy of General of the Army Douglas MacArthur. The memorial is also dedicated to preserving and presenting the story of the millions of men and women who served with General MacArthur. Each month, the staff of the memorial will use this podcast to explore topics relating to General MacArthur and his times. On June 13, 1899, Douglas MacArthur entered the United States Military Academy at West Point. It was the fulfillment of a boyhood ambition, and it was to be the start of his extraordinary military career. But it was nearly over before it began. A little over a year into his time at West Point, a controversy erupted over allegations that hazing at West Point had resulted in the death of a cadet. As details of the hazing emerged, it ignited a firestorm of controversy. President William McKinley called for an investigation into the hazing, and some in Congress even called for the abolition of the nation's military academies. MacArthur would play a central role in this drama. Called before a military court of inquiry, and then a congressional committee, MacArthur was soon making national headlines as he testified about his own experiences as a first-year cadet. At the turn of the century, hazing at West Point was defined as a practice of playing mischievous or abusive tricks and trying the pluck and temper by physical persecution of a lower class of students. Hazing was directed at new students, also referred to as plebes, and was conducted by upperclassmen. The purpose of the practice was to rid the new cadets of conceit and to introduce them to the rigid discipline of life at West Point. Hazing was also designed to weed out any new cadets that were mentally or physically unfit for service. It was secretly endorsed by professors, school administrators, and alumni as a necessary part of forging the best qualified graduates. Hazing at West Point can be traced to around 1865. It arose mainly as a substitute for amusements, which were entirely lacking, but gradually it came to play an important role in the education of new cadets. Over the next decades, innocent pranks graduated to more serious hazing, some of which resulted in injuries and possible deaths. By the time Douglas MacArthur set foot on the plains of West Point in 1899, there were 50 recognized types of hazing. Some of these involved forcing a plebe to swallow Tabasco sauce or to conduct an official military funeral for a dead rodent. Eagling and wooden willying were another two popular forms of hazing. According to the Army's 1901 official report on hazing at the U.S. Military Academy, eagling occurred when a fourth-class man, standing on his toes with his arms extended, dropped down to a sitting posture, rose part way, waved his arms like wings, again depressed his body to a sitting posture, rose again, and continued this during the period or for a number of times required. Wooden willying involved a fourth-class man taking the regulation gun and drawing it up to the position of fire, then dropping it to the position of ready, and continuing this repeatedly. While the standard number of repetitions for exercises like these was generally around 200, some cadets were pushed to do as many as 600 repetitions, leaving them mentally and physically exhausted. Any cadet who refused to cooperate was called out to fight bare-fisted against a larger, stronger upperclassman. In this unofficial fight club, the plebe and the upperclassman would fight until one of them was knocked out. 
More often than not, the plebe ended up unconscious. When Douglas MacArthur arrived at West Point, he was 5'11 and weighed 133 pounds. He consistently chose to endure hazing rather than be called out to fight, which was probably a wise choice. Plebes who refused hazing, but then also refused to fight to a knockout, brought shame and dishonor on their class. They were then ostracized by the upperclassmen as well as their own class. Hazing was meant to be a leveling practice, a way to force cohesion and discipline on a group of young men of different backgrounds and socioeconomic statuses. In the special military investigation of cadet hazing in 1900, Cadet John Kerr explained that the reason plebes were hazed was to make them all stand on the same ground and to make them realize that they were no better than anybody else. The sons of famous military men were especially targeted by the upperclassmen, who were anxious to strip them of any conceit or ego. Philip H. Sheridan, Jr., the son of the famous Civil War general and a member of the West Point class of 1902, was forced to ride a broomstick up and down the company street, saying, Turn, boys, turn. We are going back, in mockery of his illustrious father's achievement at Cedar Creek in October of 1864. Douglas MacArthur entered the academy at a time when his father, General Arthur MacArthur, was serving with much fame in the Philippines. This made him a special target within the class of 1903, but he was not alone. Ulysses S. Grant III, grandson of Ulysses S. Grant, was also a member of his class and was subject to intense hazing as well. It didn't help matters that MacArthur and Grant also had their mothers living at what is today the Thayer Hotel at West Point. Apart from being targeted on account of their famous relatives, both boys were suspected of being mama's boys by the upperclassmen and singled out for additional hazing. The first summer at West Point is often the most difficult of a cadet's life. From July to August, plebes live in beast barracks under the strict tutelage of upperclassmen. Hazing was often at its worst in these weeks. Decades after they left West Point, many alumni remembered the extreme scrutiny and hazing that MacArthur faced in Beast Barracks. Some of the hazing was relatively innocuous. MacArthur was frequently forced to make funny speeches, to take a turtle through formations as if it was a battalion on parade, and to recite his famous father's record. Sometimes he had to hang from his toes and fingers from a cot until he fell, and at other times he was forced to take a sweat bath, which involved dressing in full uniform, putting on a raincoat, covering himself with blankets, and then spending the night in a hot, closed tent. Other hazing was more dangerous. One particular night, MacArthur, who had already been subjected to other hazing throughout the day, was taken into a dark tent with broken glass littering the floor. There he did 250 eagles and 200 wooden willies before he passed out. When he regained consciousness, he suffered from a series of convulsions for several hours. To help hide his condition, MacArthur asked his roommate, Frederick H. Cunningham, to throw a blanket over his legs so that the company commander would not hear his legs twitching and bumping against the floor against his will. Cadet Albert B. Dockery, class of 1902, and one of the cadets involved in hazing MacArthur, was so worried about MacArthur that he checked on him in his tent. 
Although many of the cadets were concerned, no aid was summoned for MacArthur, as all the cadets were worried about getting in trouble for their part in the hazing. Despite the unofficial approval of the administration, professors, and alumni, hazing was technically against regulations. However, in an odd twist, under the regulations, the victim of hazing was also held responsible for the hazing, which meant that the hazer and the victim would both face the penalty of dismissal. This had a predictable result. No one ever came forward with a complaint about hazing. Regardless, however, even if there hadn't been a regulation like this, it is unlikely that MacArthur would ever have complained. In his autobiography, MacArthur later wrote, Hazing was practiced with a worthy goal, but with methods that were violent and uncontrolled. He recognized that there had been abuses, but he explained that his parents had taught him two immutable principles, never to lie, never to tattle. As a young man, he was determined that nothing would derail his career in the Army. Cadet Robert E. Wood, later the head of Sears, Roebuck & Company, witnessed much of the hazing MacArthur underwent at West Point. According to Wood, all members of the first class watched MacArthur for any sign of weakness, but he emerged from Beast Barracks that summer with flying colors. He showed himself a true soldier. Wood also remarked that MacArthur demonstrated a great deal of fortitude and dignity. Arthur P. Hyde, a first-classman, was so impressed with MacArthur's attention to duty and his manifest determination to make a good cadet that he invited MacArthur to be his roommate. MacArthur caused a bit of amusement among the upperclassmen when he hesitated to accept, said he must consult his mother, and then came back 30 minutes later, happy to accept Hyde's offer. He would still be teased over the presence of his mother, but he had earned the respect of his fellow cadets. Not all cadets were as fortunate, or showed the same qualities as MacArthur. Cadet Oscar Booz entered West Point on June 20, 1898. He was 18 years old, 5'9", and 134 pounds the summer he arrived at the academy. His decision to go to West Point had surprised even his parents, and by all accounts, he was not as strong as the other cadets, and was somewhat of a loner. In August 1898, his family received a letter about a fight he had been in. He had been called out to fight for resisting hazing. Cadet John Kerr, who witnessed the fight, later testified, At the beginning, Booz rushed in and endeavored to exchange blows. The first blow he received was beneath the left eye. After he got this blow, he was not inclined to face his opponent and ran around the ring trying to avoid the other man. Occasionally, he would make a half-hearted attempt to fight, but whenever he received a slight blow, he would go down to the ground and stay there until he was picked up. Finally, he would not get up at all and said he would give up the fight. He was whimpering. After that, Booz was looked upon as a coward by the Corps and was not associated with. Booz wrote to his family that he had suffered two black eyes and had passed out after a punch directly over his heart. On August 7, 1889, he wrote, The fellows have talked terribly to me ever since the fight, for they say that I dropped out because I did not want to fight, and not because I was knocked out. I think they just want to kill me if possible, or come as near to it as possible. There is no use of talking. The fellows here are brutes, and they have evil in their minds. His concerned father soon visited him at West Point. 
Mr. Booz later told investigators that he had advised his son to bear the hazing, but that his son had told him he had expected hazing, but not brutal treatment, such as having Tabasco sauce poured down his throat. By fall, his health had greatly deteriorated, and Booz left West Point and returned home. According to his parents, he worked hard to get healthy and eventually accepted a job in a law office. He soon had to quit, however, because of throat problems, eventually diagnosed as tuberculosis of the throat. He died on December 1, 1900. His grieving family, remembering his poor treatment at West Point, immediately saw a link between the hazing, particularly the Tabasco sauce, and the throat problems that killed him. The West Point hazing scandal had emerged. Newspapers across the country picked up on the story of the cadet who had ultimately been killed by hazing. The president and the general public took the accusations very seriously. Official inquiries into hazing at West Point were announced. There would be a military court of inquiry and a congressional inquiry. The military court was convened first, presided over by a general who had a nephew at West Point at the time. The regulation that held that the victim was just as guilty of hazing as the person doing the hazing was struck down, opening the way for a more open investigation into hazing practices. MacArthur was soon called to testify, not about the treatment of Cadet Booze, but about the hazing he himself had experienced. Nervous and close to vomiting, he waited to take the stand. To steal his nerves, his mother sent him a poem, which included the following lines. Remember the world will be quick with its blame if shadow or shame ever darken your name. Like mother, like son is saying so true, the world will judge largely of mother by you. Under this additional pressure, and terribly nauseated, on the stand MacArthur reluctantly divulged the details of his own hazing, careful to reveal no information that the court did not already know. He admitted that he thought hazing was cruel at times, but that his own hazing was no more severe than that given to others and was in no way calculated to place him in a severe physical condition. Cadets called to testify about the treatment of cadet booze overwhelmingly characterized him as unpopular and unsuited to academy life. One of the observers at the trial was heard to remark, it seems to me that Booz came here expecting to find the academy to be a sort of theological seminary, and that the disillusion he experienced was far too great for him to bear. Some cadets admitted that Booz had been terribly mistreated, but the bottom line was that he had been a poor cadet from the start. It was also revealed that had Booz not dropped out of the academy in the fall, he would have been expelled on account of poor grades. On January 8, 1901, the military court concluded that hazing was indeed a problem that needed to be solved, but that Cadet Booz did not die from hazing. The court sent 1,000 typewritten pages documenting its findings to Secretary of War Elihu Root. Meanwhile, the Congressional Committee arrived in New York to conduct additional hearings. As many had expected, the Congressional inquiry was sensational and full of drama. MacArthur was called again to testify. This time his nervousness was obvious to all, but his testimony remained the same. For most congressmen on the committee, the inquiry was more about grandstanding than any meaningful resolution to the problem of hazing. Congressman James Griggs of Georgia described the hazing at West Point as, 
atrocious, base, detestable, disgraceful, dishonorable, disreputable, heinous, ignominious, ill-famed, nefarious, odious, outrageous, scandalous, shameful, shameless, villainous, and wicked. According to the newspaper The World, the young cadet on the stand when Congressman Griggs went on this rant looked as if he had led a detachment into an ambush and been opened up on by a rapid-fire battery. Senator William Allen of Nebraska referred to the cadets as ragamuffins and called for the abolishment of military academies and the breaking of the power of the regular army. Senator Hernando de Soto Money of Mississippi exclaimed during the hearings, If they treated me with the inhuman indignities reported, I would kill my persecutors if it took me 100 years. With statements like these, the scandal remained in the headlines for many weeks. On January 19, 1901, the American author Mark Twain weighed in on the hazing scandal in the New York Times. The men who indulge in hazing are bullies and cowards. I would make it the duty of a cadet to report to the authorities any case of hazing which came to his notice. Make such reports a part of the vaunted West Point Code of Honor, and the beating of young boys by upperclassmen will be stopped. With pressure coming from all corners, something had to be done. In March of 1901, Congress passed a law forbidding acts against plebes that were of a harming, tyrannical, abusive, shameful, insulting, or humiliating nature, or that would endanger the well-being of a cadet. Naturally, hazing would continue on various levels, but Congress and the public were relatively satisfied that reforms had been enacted. MacArthur's first years at the Academy were largely overshadowed by the hazing scandal, but he would go on to have a very successful time at West Point. He surprised few of those who knew him during his plebe year when he graduated top in his class in 1903. Nearly 20 years later, MacArthur returned to West Point as superintendent. In this capacity, he worked hard to further restrict hazing, while at the same time championing a West Point athletic program and making athletics a mandatory part of each cadet's daily life. In athletics, he saw the perfect opportunity to teach discipline, hard work, and cohesion, while also strengthening the bodies and minds of the young men under his charge, on who so much would depend in the future. Thank you for listening. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please feel free to contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.